Good morning, Crowd family. I'm so glad you can join us today. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 23 is today's text. We're going to finish the whole chapter. Again, chapter 3, verses 5 through 23 is today's text. We're now in part 8 of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text. That was verses 1 through 4. And Paul's focus was on the carnal Christian. And he first of all points out their immaturity, and he calls them mere infants in Christ. And he's addressing those who have been born again for years, for many years, and yet they haven't matured. They're, they're acting worldly, they're acting fleshly, they're acting carnal. And you see, he's having to treat them as though they had remained in the flesh, as though uh, they did not possess the Holy Spirit, so he couldn't address them as mature Christians. And I want you to look at verse 2. Verse 2, Paul says, I, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So remember, in context, Paul was speaking historically when he was first with the Corinthians, those 18 months he was at Corinth. Now, the Corinthian believers should, should have been ready for the, the meat of God's word, for the deep things of God or deeper things of God, but they weren't. They were still in their baby stage of growth. They were just satisfied with milk. They were stuck in the milk stage. Now, perhaps they believed they were ready for the deeper things of God, but they weren't living any deeper in the basic things Paul already preached to them. So because of their immaturity, because of their carnality, Paul lays out the evidence of that, and he shows them the three marks, or we could say the three characteristics of their carnal rebelliousness that brought a, a critical and divisive spirit to the church at Corinth. And the evidence of their carnality was clearly manifested. And I want you to look at verses 3b, the second part of verse 3, all the way through verse 4. And Paul writes, for since there is jealousy, the first mark or characteristic is selfishness. Selfishness. See, the basic factor that drives jealousy is selfishness. For since there is jealousy, that's selfishness, and quarreling among you, quarreling among you, that's strife. That's the second characteristic, strife. He says, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Then he says, verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, Apollos, uh, are you not mere men? That splits. The third characteristic splits. So you have selfishness, strife, and splits. They were comparing leaders and they were creating factions, which was threatening the unity of the church that could potentially split the church. This now brings us to today's text. And the title of my message is God's Filled, God's Building. Everyone say that. God's Filled, God's Building. Now, now, now before we dive into the text, we need to understand that Primarily in context, primarily in context, the text is speaking to ministers uh, and pastors who are building up the building of God, the assembly of the church. But it does have application to all believers. You got that? It has application to all believers. So three points in our text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Point number one is this. Write it down is the workers. Write that down, the workers. Say that, the, the workers. And we look at verse 5a, look at verse 5a with me. And Paul writes, What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? And he answers it. He says, Only servants through whom you came to believe. So Paul's question implies that they are not anything in and of themselves, rather, they're simply servants. They're simply ministers. Say servants, say, say ministers. Now, although Paul held, excuse me, held the office of apostleship, he refers to himself here as a servant. 
Now, in the Greek, the word servant is diakonos, diakonos, which originally meant table waiters. And we see uh, this in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, Acts 6, 1, verses 1 through 6. And this is, this is where we get our word deacon, say deacon. And it's used in John 2, John chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, John 2, verses 5 through 9, chapter 2, 5 through 9, to describe the house servants at the wedding feast where Jesus turned the water into wine. It's used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, chapter 20, Matthew 20, verse 26, when he says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. It's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, to describe those who hold the office of a deacon. Now I want to remind you in Matthew 20, verse 28, Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. You see, Paul viewed himself as a servant of God. And you might, you might remember back in our series from the book of Titus what I said about the servant. So follow me here. The servant was totally owned by the master. The servant was totally owned by the master. Listen, if, 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 listen, if, if, if you're saved, if you're saved, you're God's possession. He owns you. Got it? So the servant was totally owned by the master. Also, the servant existed, the servant existed for his master. And he had no other reason for his existence. Now, if you're saved, say amen. If you said amen, get this now, you have no rights. You exist for God. And the only rights you have are those of your master, those of your master who is God. Also, the servant existed to serve his master. The servant existed to serve his master. He had no other purpose, no other purpose in life but to serve his master, to do what the master said. He was at the master's disposal at any hour, day, or night. And that being said, friends, if you're saved, listen now, if you're saved, the number one purpose in your life is to worship and to serve God. Also, the servant belonged exclusively to his master. I love that. The servant belonged exclusively to his master. He was allowed no will, no ambition outside that which his master allowed him to have. Listen, friends, there was to be a total surrender. Say that, total surrender to every part of the servant's being to the will of the master. So a servant is nothing special, right? We see that. And here in the text, Paul and Apollos were merely servants. They, they were instruments God used to bring the Corinthians to faith in Christ. Look at the text again. Only servants through whom you came to believe. So they were merely servants who were given an opportunity to serve. And you see, the service they rendered was to deliver the gospel that the Corinthians believed. Friends, a servant, listen now, a servant is merely one who carries out the will of his master. Look at verse 5b. Verse 5b. Paul writes, As the Lord has assigned to each his task. I'm going to read that again. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. So Paul is simply saying, we're just agents of God. We're just servants, ministers. And it's God, it's God, he's saying. He's saying it's God who sets the task and gives opportunities to minister the word of God, to share the gospel. Now, I want to tell you, friends, I am so blessed. I am totally blessed to be your pastor, to shepherd you, and uh, to preach the word of God to you every single Sunday. 
But it was God. Say it was God. It was God who set the task, who set the task and blessed me with the opportunity to do what I do. It's not wit. It's not cleverness. It's not IQ. Trust me, I am not that smart or anything else which opened the doors for ministry. It was God. It was God. Therefore, God and God only, listen, God and God only is the one who's received the glory. It's, it's, it's like this. Listen, if you were to be invited to the house of a rich man for an elaborate, lavish banquet, you wouldn't send a thank you note to the servant who served the meal, right? But to the master who invited you. And this is a, a fitting analogy. A servant of God is one who serves the gospel. He didn't make it. It wasn't his creation. He simply serves what God has provided. Can someone say amen? Verse 6, verse 6. Paul writes, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. I love that. And here you notice that Paul is using an agriculture metaphor. Now, in order to make a garden grow, you got to sow. You got to sow seed, right? Plant seed, and then, then it has to be watered. Got it? It's got to be watered. So Paul planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God ultimately makes it grow. So I want you to follow me here. Paul was the evangelist, uh, the, the church planter who started the church at Corinth, and Apollos was the Bible teacher, the equipper of the believers in that church. So this begs the question, which is more important, the evangelist or the Bible teacher? Well, Paul answers that in verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me. He, he writes, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God. Gosh, I love that. But only God. Say that. But only God who makes things grow. So they're all equal zero, right? They all equal zero. They're not anything in terms of actual causing the growth. And you see, friends, their value is as instruments. I love this. Their value is as instruments in the very hands of God. Now, I want you to follow me here. This simply indicates that they all sink into insignificance in comparison to God's work in accomplishing His purposes. There's two lessons. We, all have a, we always have a lesson, right? So there's two lessons here. The first lesson is this. God doesn't need us, but He chooses to use us. Write that down. God doesn't need us, but He chooses to use us. Someone please say amen to that. Listen, listen. God is holy. God is eternal. God is almighty. God is totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need us, friends, okay? He's not dependent on anything or anyone, but He chooses to use us. How awesome, how amazing is that? I mean, that ought to blow your mind. That all ought, ought to humble us, right? That God chooses to use us. Got it? So he doesn't need us, right? He's God, but he chooses to use us. And what a blessing that is, that God is using you and that God is using me. Got it? The second lesson is this. It's not about us. It's all about God. It's not about us, not about you, it's not about me. It's all about the living God. And you see, some of the Corinthian believers, we know this, right? Want to line up behind their favorite pastors, but in the end, say in the end, it's not that pastor or it's not that leader 
that causes things to grow. The only one that counts is, is God. That's it. Say, say it's God. Come on, say it's God. It's God who makes it grow. It's God, listen now, who gives the increase. It was God who was causing the growth, not Paul or Paulos. So neither of them deserve the credit. They are simply servants of the one, say the one who gave them, who gave, excuse me, gave the increase, and that's God himself. And Paul is simply saying, they are under the one who does the growing. That it was God who is primarily responsible for any spiritual benefit that came through their ministries. It's kind of like this, friends. When, 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 an, when an artist paints a masterpiece, we don't see people admiring the paintbrush that he used. Rather, rather, they admire the hands, the hands of the one who used the paintbrush to create that beautiful work of art. Or when a carpenter builds a beautiful mansion, we don't see people admiring the hammer that he used. Rather, friends, they admire the handiwork that's created by the carpenter. My point is this. As Christians, we should never idolize those who minister to us. Listen, friends, they're mere tools in the hand of the master. They're mere tools in the hands of God. So we should never be too carried away uh, with the instrument which God used. In fact, friends, Isaiah 42, chapter 42, verse 8, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. So we should never exalt the instrument, never exalt the pastor, the minister, the leader, the teacher, only God. Can I get an amen? Only God. Verse 8a, stay with me. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 8a, the man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. I, I love this. I'm, I'm going to read that again. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. So follow me here. If no one planted, then the water would be useless. If no one watered, the planting would be worthless. So they must literally, listen now, function as a single unit. Got it? Function as a single unit. They, they have one goal and one purpose. So, so, so they're not rivals here. They're not rivals, friends, or competitors. They're working together here. They have one goal, one purpose. One is going to, to water. One is, go, one is going to plant. One is going to water. Got it? They're working together. Now, there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Plant the seed. Say that. Write that down. Plant the seed. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 through 23, again, Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 through 23, Jesus, Jesus explains the parable of the four types of soil that the seed landed on. And, and the type of harvest that each seed would produce depended on the type of, what, soil, right? Now listen, when we share our faith in Christ with others, what we're doing is nothing more than just planting the seed. That's all we're doing. When we're sharing the gospel, when we're ministering to the lost, all that we're doing is planting the seed. We're sowing the seed. And what happens to that seed is related to what kind of, what kind of person the seed has been planted in. Now, as Christians, our desire is for that person to hear the gospel, right? To hear the gospel, right? And, and to accept the seed, to accept Jesus Christ, right? That's it. But if their soul is not in the right condition, we're not going to see a successful harvest. 
And you see, ultimately what happens to that seed depends on two people. Two people. The person who received the seed and God. The person who received the seed and God. Our responsibility, listen now, our responsibility is to simply plant the seed, to share the gospel. If they receive the seed, and if it takes root, then we are to water it. Can someone say amen? Verse 8b, verse 8b. And each will be rewarded according to his own labor. And each will be rewarded according to his own labor. Each pastor and each minister has been given different gifts and different ministries to perform, and they will each receive their rewards, not according to their office, not according to their success, not according to their gifts, but according to their labors. Got it? To their labors. The Greek word labors is uh, kopos, and it looks at the cost, the strain, the toil, the weariness, which is involved in being a pastor or a minister of the gospel. Now, obviously, this ha- also has application to all believers. So, so everyone who waters God's garden, who, who helps cultivate God's field, God's building, will be rewarded for their work. And this brings us right into verse 9. Verse 9, Paul writes, For we are God's, say God's, fellow workers. I love that. For we are God's fellow workers. So Paul sees, and I want to stop there, Paul, Paul sees himself and Apollos as, as, as fellow workers with God, and not just with God, but, but for God in their labors. They're, they're fellow workers, not competitors. They're working together. They're not working against each other. And that's the way the body of Christ ought to be. We're in this together. Okay, we, we, we're not competing with each other. We are complementing each other. We're in this together. We're God's, listen, we are God's fellow workers. Got it? So we need to work together. Then he says this, you are God's field. You are God's, you say you are God's field. Now keep in mind, the word you here in the Greek is plural. It means you all. You all. So Paul's talking to believers as a group in Corinth. You know, there's the church Say the church. So Paul stopped talking about himself and Apollos, and Apollos, and he began to talk about the Corinthians, the church, the church. The church is called a field which also belongs to God. Now, here Paul is probably thinking of evangelism, of, of growth and increase of the church. We are God's, listen, we are God's servants, we are God's ministers, we are God's, listen, we are God's filled hands, filled hands in God's garden. I love that. God's filled hands in God's garden. Then Paul says, God's building. Got it? God's fellow workers, God's filled, God's building. Now notice what Paul does. Paul shifts the metaphor from agriculture to architecture. And he switches from talking about the church as a field and now uses the metaphor of a building. In other words, you're God's filled. That's great. You're God's filled, okay? But you're also God's structure. You're God's building. You're God's church. You're the church. You're the church. Look at verse 10. By the grace God has given me. I love the way that Paul always goes back to the grace of God. If it were not for the grace of God, say the grace of God. By the grace God has given me. Paul makes it known that it's the grace of God. I laid a foundation as an expert builder. In the Greek, that's sophos architectone. Sophos, architectone, again, it means expert builder or, or master builder or wise builder or an architect full of wisdom. And this was Paul. 
This was his specialty. Paul was a foundation layer. And he laid the foundation in Corinth. He, he preached the gospel. People got saved, right? People got saved, and he raised up leaders, and then he moved on somewhere else and did it again. And he would lay foundations and then, and then let other people build on it. Let's read on. It says it there. And someone else is building on it. So Apollos was, was, was the one who came along behind Paul and began building upon the foundation that Paul had built. Let's read on, let's read on here. Oh, no, let's, yeah, let's read on. But each one, say each one, should be careful how he builds. But each one should be careful how he builds. In this context, each one is referring to ministers, to, to pastors, okay, who are called and gifted by God to build the church in a special way. However, those who do the work of the ministry and, and also uh, ministers uh, in, in the broad, and also ministers in the broadest sense, uh, oh, let me say it again, those, those who do the work of the ministry are also ministers in the broadest, 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 broadest sense. Uh, this applies to them as well. So this applies to all Christians. Now, primarily, this is speaking to pastors, right? But secondarily, it's speaking to all Christians. Paul tells the Corinthians that each one of them should be very careful what they do with their lives and in the teachings which he and others had delivered to them. So they should be very careful how they, in other words, how they build upon the foundation which Paul uh, had laid. Now this begs the question, how are we to build carefully upon the foundation? Good question. How are we to build carefully upon the the foundation. Well, you search out the truth in God's word. It's all about God's word. In fact, friends, in, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2.15, in 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul told Timothy of the importance of the studying and rightly dividing of the word of God uh, to show yourself to God as one approved. Someone once said this, and I love it, said, a Bible that is not carefully studied will not be carefully followed. I'm going to say it again. A Bible that is not carefully studied will not be carefully followed. Did you get that? Did you get that? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus taught his disciples about the importance of hearing the word of God, not just hearing the word of God, but also doing it, putting it, putting it into practice. And Jesus said that the one who heard it and then acted upon it was like a wise man, a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And when the storms of life hit, it could not bring it down for it was founded upon a rock. But the one who heard it and, and didn't act upon it was like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And when the storms of life hit, it immediately fell. So what's the lesson? Here's the lesson. Build our lives on the Word of God. Build our lives on the Word of God. It's the Word of God, friends. We need to build our lives on a daily basis on the Word of God, which means that you and I need to spend time in the Word of God. We need to bear our face in the Word of God. Study it. Know it. Read it. Heed to it. Live it out. Are you spending time in the Word of God? If not, you need to. If you call yourself a believer, you ought to have a love relationship with the Word of God. 
not just with the God of the Word, but also with the Word of God. So we need to build our lives upon the Word of God, not upon society, what society says, not upon culture, what culture says, but upon the Word of God, what God says. Number one is the workers. Number two, point number two is the works. Write that down, say that, the works, the works. Look at verse 11, verse 11, the works. Verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is who? Which is Jesus Christ. Love that. Say that. Underline that. Highlight that. Circle that. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if the foundation of the building is solid, then the building will stand and it will not crumble, right? But if, if it has a bad foundation, then that means that the building is bad. The foundation is everything. It's everything. And Paul made it very clear that the foundation of the church is who? Jesus Christ. It's not a founder of a denomination. It's not a council. It's not a tradition. It's not Peter. And for sure, it's not Mary. I mean, she lost Jesus when he was 12. She might lose me, Right? There's only one foundation that Paul writes that we know of in God's word, and that's Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. Jesus is the only solid foundation for my life, for your life, and, it is, and anything else is a weak, poor, shifting, sinking foundation. Got it? Listen, hey, listen. If a church doesn't have Jesus Christ as their only foundation as a central focus of who they are, friends, it's going to crumble. Any church, any church which begins to move away from the person and the work of Jesus Christ begins to sl slide spiritually and soon will collapse and totally, totally crumble. Now remember, remember this. The Greek philosophers were trying to invade the, the church at Corinth and they wanted to lay a different foundation of philosophy speculation, and theories. And don't forget uh, the Judaizers. Don't forget the Judaizers, Judaizers who, who wanted to lay the, 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 uh, the different foundation of, of good works, saying that if, you, if a person wanted to be saved, he had to keep the works of the Mosaic law. Well, here in the text, Paul declared there's only, what, one foundation. And who is that foundation? Again, come on, it's Jesus Christ. And every builder is to build upon that foundation so as, this is now so as to produce a strong, dynamic, local church. And this is why every, every minister, every pastor must keep Jesus Christ at the center of their ministry, at the center of the church. Can I get an amen? Verse 12, you're still with me, say amen. Verse 12, if any man, say any man. Now again, in this context, this refers to pastors and to ministers, but it could apply to any Christian who ministers in the home, the church, or in the community. So any man, excuse me, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones. So I want to stop there. These materials were symbols that could refer to what the pastor or what the minister says and does. How, how, they, how they live their ministry out in a practical way. And what they teach and, and how they equip the saints to do the work of the ministry in uh, building of the church. 
Gold, silver, and costly stones could also refer to pure doctrine, solid, pure doctrine. So these works are good. They're good works and will receive a reward from God on the judgment day for pastors, for ministers, for, for all believers. Then he goes on to say this, wood, hay, or straw. Wood, hay, or straw. These materials refer to the wisdom of the world, which is the, the speculations, traditions, uh, and, and the changing philosophies, philosophies of men. It, it's false, impure, watered down. Get this now, watered down doctrine, which produces no strong Christians and equips no one to do the work of the ministry. So these works are, are not good, and because they're not good, it will be burned up and leaving no reward for the believer on the judgment day of believers. So Paul lists two kinds of materials, right? Those which are valuable and permanent, and those which are worthless and temporary. Verse 13, let's move on. His work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. Now that's the day of judgment for believers. It's known as the Bema Seat. So his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Test the quality of each man's work. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. Listen, this is not, this is not a judgment for our sins. Got it? It's not a judgment for our sins. Our sins have already been judged on the cross. Jesus took our sins upon himself, and he faced the judgment for me and for you. Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore there is what? Now no condemnation for those who are in who? Christ Jesus. So it's not a judgment for our sins. So we know that there will be a judgment for our sins. Okay, got that? Okay, but there's, there'll be no judgment for our sins. We know that no judgment for our sins, but there's a judgment seat of Christ. And that's our judgment for our works. 2 Corinthians 5.10, 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Say that, judgment seat of Christ. That's the Bema seat. So that each of us may receive what is due for do us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, the word bad there in the Greek is phalos, phalos, and it means worthless. It doesn't mean bad like an evil. It just means worthless, okay? So, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or worthless, worthless. This is the Bema seat. It's at that judgment that we will either be rewarded or that we will lose a reward. Got it? Verse 14. Verse 14. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. So this is the gold, the silver, and the costly stones. And for these materials, the builder will be rewarded for his labors. These works will survive the fiery judgment of Christ. Now listen, if you're involved in the ministry or any work uh, you do for Christ, it will be judged by Christ at the judgment seat, the Bema seat, and, and he will judge your motives, my motives, and reward you and I accordingly. If you got it, say got it. Verse 15, verse 15. If you're loving this, say amen. Verse 15. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. 
if it is burned up, got that? He will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So listen, now one of the possible tests that will determine whether something survives a fire, get this now, is our motivation. What is our motive behind what we do? What is our motive behind our service and, and, and the works that we do in the name of Christ? Hmm? 1 Corinthians 13, 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. Paul writes, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but do not have love, this is what he says, I gain nothing. You see, the things we've done for the wrong and in the wrong motives are burned up. They will profit us nothing. Nada, zip, zero. This man tells about a dream that he had on the judgment seat of Christ. And as he was there, his works piled up. And angels kept bringing them in and, and piling them up and up and up and up. And he was so proud of his work. Then another angel came in and lit it on fire. And it was like a burning haystack. Huh. Let's go back to the text. He himself will be saved. I want you to get this now, okay? He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Now, friends, listen. I'm going to read it again. He himself, we've got to make sure this is in context, right? Right? We're talking about rewards. We're talking about rewards, about works. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So the issue here is not about salvation. It's not about salvation. Our salvation is securing Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? This is not an evaluation of a person's salvation, but of the quality of work they have produced. Got it? What this is saying is a believer building on the foundation, on the foundation using wood, hay, or straw is like escaping from a burning building, but their possessions and their accomplishments will be lost and will be burned. If you got it, say got it. And by the way, what are the rewards in heaven? When you get there and God's going to reward you, they're crowns. They're crowns. He is going to give us crowns for the works that we've done, the good works that we've done, the works that have passed the test. But guess what? Those crowns are not for us to keep on our heads. Those crowns, we take them off and we cast them at the feet of Jesus. And that's found in Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. Isn't that awesome? He gets those crowns. We thank him. We thank him. We thank him because he used us. Amen? So number one is the workers. Number two is the works. And number three, number three is the warning. Say that, the warning. The warning. Write that down, the warning. And there's two subpoints I have here. Say the warning. The first subpoint is this. Don't defile God's temple. Write that down. Don't, say that, don't defile God's temple. Say that. Don't defile God's temple. That's the first subpoint. Let's look at verses 16 through 17. 16 through 17. Paul writes, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? Verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred. We could say the word holy. Use the word holy. 
And you, you are that, what, temple. Now follow me here. In context, Paul has been talking about building a building, right? Building a building. That building is, is, is what? It's a church. It's a church. The Greek word for you here is a plural you. It means you all. So the temple Paul's talking about here is not the individual temple, the body, which he speaks of in chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We'll get that into that later on in the series. But he's speaking here of, in context of the church, the body of Christ, collectively the body of Christ. So when we gather together as a church, we're God's temple. And Paul pointed out that the church is God's temple here on this earth. God considers his church as what? Sacred. To be sacred. To be what? Holy. Say that, holy. Now listen, friends, and we know this, right? There are those in this world who are trying to destroy the work that God's people are doing. Right? We see it all the time. Uh, trying to destroy the church. Trying to do, undo what God has done. Trying to hinder the work of the church. Uh, trying to remove the foundation of Christ. Well, here Paul warns them. He warns them. And then he's speaking of those false teachers. Speaking of those who are trying to come into church by using uh, human philosophy, human wisdom. And Paul says those, okay, we can even call them apostates. He's saying, he's, he's saying to those, don't mess with God's temple. Don't mess with God's church because he will destroy you. Someone say amen. So don't defile God's temple, speaking of the false teachers who are trying to come in, infiltrate the church and destroy the church, Right? Number the second, excuse me, the second subpoint is don't deceive yourselves. Write that down. Say don't deceive yourselves. So don't defile God's temple. Second subpoint is don't deceive yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves. Look at verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. There it is, right? If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. Now, back in chapter 1, Paul was talking about God's wisdom versus man's wisdom. Remember that? And man tends to think that he is wise if he, have, if he has lots of degrees and lots of education. But God's wisdom, listen now, God's wisdom is all about Jesus Christ. It's all about the cross. And here, Paul, what he's doing, Paul is giving an exhortation to abandon the wisdom of the world, to become foolish in the, in the world's eyes, in order to grasp the wisdom of God. Now I want to say this. Division within the church would stop if we, if we understood the uselessness. Say that. The uselessness of the wisdom of the world. Instead, the world's way of thinking too often infiltrates the church, which affects the church's view of male and female relations of marriage, of the gray areas, and the way in which we as a church worship. Now, Paul is going to deal with each of these issues later on in this letter. But at the heart, listen now, at the heart of each of these issues is a simple question. And it's this, to whom should we turn for our answers? I mean, in other words, who is our authority? Is it the world or is it God? Huh? Is it what the world says or what God's word, God's word says? Is it culture or is it Christ? Huh? What is it? Well, it's the Word of God. 
It's the word of God, okay? Not the world, not culture, not what they think, not what they say, not what's popular. It's the word of God. It's what God says. Verses 19 through 20. 19 through 20. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. I love that. He catches the wise in their craftiness. That phrase, what Paul's doing, Paul's quoting Job chapter 5, verse 13. Job 5, 13. You see, their schemes are thwarted and the snares they laid for others end up capturing them. And this proves the foolishness of the world's wisdom. Look at verse 20. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. And again, the Lord knows, the Lord knows, because he's God, right? That the thoughts of the wise are futile. Paul is quoting Psalm 94, 11, Psalm chapter 94, verse 11, that God knows from the beginning where a train of thought will end and that it will always end in futility when it lacks God's truth. Got it? So don't defile God's temple and don't deceive yourselves. Now let's look at the remaining verses here. Okay, remaining verses here. Verses 21, let's look at verses 21 through 22 right now. It says, So then, no more boasting about men, about leaders. You know what Paul does? Paul takes us back to chapter 1, verses 29 and verse 31. And in verse 29 of chapter 1, Paul says that no one may boast before God. And in verse 31, he says, Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And what he, in here in the text, what Paul's doing, Paul summarizes what the Corinthian believers were doing when they were emphasizing the different groups and different factions within the church. So let's read on. All things are yours, he says. Verse 22, whether Paul or Apollos, Apollos or Cephas. So then, no more boasting about men, all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulos or Cephas. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. You should, listen, you should rejoice in and profit from the spiritual leaders God put in your lives, okay? But don't allow, listen, don't allow them to take the place of God. Now, friends, you should rejoice in, you should profit from the spiritual leaders that God put in your lives whether they're pastors or, or leaders or teachers, or maybe some author, I don't know. But don't allow them to take the place of God. And Paul's saying, this is all yours. These, all these things are yours. Embrace it, take it, but make sure you know their place. All things are yours, whether Paul or Paulos or Cephas. Then he says, or the world. Or the world, this is speaking of the physical universe, the cosmos, the cosmos. Listen, because God created this world. We know that, right? God created this world. As Christians, we can appreciate the world, the creation, in ways that non-believers can't. Because most non-believers don't believe that God created the world. They believe it was done by some kind of blast or some kind of explosion, right? A Big Bang Theory. But we know that God created this world so that we can appreciate it in ways that the non-believer can't. We see the creation of God. Man, He is awesome, right? 
So all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulus, Paulus or Cephas or the world. And he says, or life, or life. That means new spiritual eternal life. Okay, it could also mean abundant life. Okay, abundant life. Through life, we have life. We have abundant life here on earth, and we have everlasting, everlasting eternal life with Jesus Christ. Amen? All things are ours. Then he says, or death, or life, or death, or death. Listen, death will not be our master. Rather, our servant that delivers us to our Savior. That's all that death can do. Someone say amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. 1 Corinthians 15. This letter here we're in right now. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Paul writes, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? So we really do own death because Christ conquered it and so because Christ conquered it, we've conquered it. Therefore, there is nothing to be afraid of. Then he says, or the present, or the present. That refers to everything that you and I experience in this physical life. It includes the good things and, and, the, and the bad things, the pleasant and the painful, the, the joys and the sorrows, the health and the sickness, the contentment and the disappointments. Listen, in God's providential care for us, all of life's circumstances serve us and spiritually enrich our lives. See, in other words, there's a purpose. There's a purpose to them. There's a purpose to them. I don't know what you're going through, what you're facing in life right now, but there's a purpose for them. God is doing something in the midst of all that. You know, in this COVID-19, almost a year now, you know, but God's been doing wonderful things in the midst of this COVID-19. He is busy about doing great things in the midst of this, right? Romans 8, 28, right? And we know that in all things, not, not some things, in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his, what? Say purpose, purpose. So let's, let's, let's close with verse 23. Verse 23. If you're still with me, say amen. And you are of Christ. I love this. And Christ is of God. And you are, oh, let's go back. He says, or the future. He says, all are yours. All that we spoke, all are yours. And he says this, and you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. Paul is saying to the Corinthian believers and Paul is saying to all believers that we have all the resources and all the wisdom of God at our disposal. Isn't that awesome? At our disposal. We are co-heirs with Christ in all things. Friends, our birthright, say that, birthright makes us spiritually rich in resources for living life to the fullest. If you're saved, say amen. Come on, if you're saved, say amen. I'm going to say amen. Listen, if you said amen, 
You belong to Christ as Christ belongs to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we love you and we thank you for loving us and for choosing us and choosing to use us. Thank you for giving us the honor and the privilege and the blessing of being fellow workers of your kingdom, your field, your building, your temple. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Someone say amen. I hope you got a lot in this study today, in this message, and that you will apply it to your lives. Not only be hearers of the word of God, but also doers. Now, perhaps you're out there, you're one who's listening, um, who's watching online, and you've never, never given your life to Jesus Christ. And hopefully today, as we preach the word to you, the seed was planted. It's moved in your heart. And if you're the one who says, you know what, I, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to be saved. I want to follow Jesus Christ. If that's you, then I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I want you to repeat this prayer after me. Would you do that? So let's bow our heads and close our eyes and say, dear Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner and I need you to come into my life. I invite you to come into my life to save me, to cleanse me and to change me. I, I, Lord, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised him from the dead. I am saved. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me, and I will serve you from this day forth until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, if you said that prayer, if you decided you want to follow Jesus Christ, you can email us at contact at cryout.org. That's contact at cryout.org. Again, we would love to hear from you if you made a decision to follow Christ, you made a decision to ask him to come into your life. Well, friends, I, I hope you have a blessed day, a blessed Sunday, a happy, happy Sunday, and um, that God would continue to give you strength and wisdom, that you would follow him, that you would bury your face, your heart, your eyes into the word of God. Okay? Love you, God bless you, and I will see you next week.